Talking coaching, rowing, and all things sports science. It's the Bro Show with Bill Tate and Rod Siegel. G'day out there, how are we going? Welcome, Rodney. G'day, Big Lightning, how are we going, mate? Not too bad, not too bad. Had an interesting day today down there. We had a couple of blokes having a crack at a 2K ergo, uh, which we'll talk about in another podcast. But we've got a pretty. Uh, Interesting podcast today, a different take for us. We've got a guest with us. Yeah, yeah, we're um, going to talk about strength training today. It's um, it's importance in rowing and you know how it sort of fits into the training program in rowing. And we've got our strength and conditioning coach, uh, John Tasconi here. Go ahead, Johnny. Thanks for having me, Rod. Bill, it's a pleasure to be on this show. We hang out a lot at work, but it's nice to be uh, mixing up a little bit today. We, yeah, it's quite funny for mo- most people won't know, but we sit about half a metre away from each other normally, and here we are sitting about half a metre away, crowded around a microphone. Um, So we're going to get through a bit of stuff today. We're going to talk about strength training and rowing, which is something most of the people listening to this podcast would know a bit about or experience, but we're going to talk about how it's used, the traditional stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the recent ideas that we've been playing with. Uh, And then we're going to talk about how it flows over a typical season. And as a treat at the very end, uh, JT here is going to describe for us a bit of a typical strength block training session and talk through some of those ideas. Yeah, hopefully it's all very exciting stuff. I'm sure it will be. Um, So without further ado, we will get on with it. So John, as we sort of said in the intro, strength training and rowing, it sort of goes hand in hand. Everyone does it. Yep. But I guess what we're trying to examine in these podcasts is you know the you know almost challenge the t- traditional dogma a little bit and, and get our heads around that sort of stuff. So perhaps we can start off with just getting you to describe to us a little bit about you know what are the key elements of strength in rowing? Why is it important? Mm. You know what are the factors that you consider in that sort of thing? Yeah, thanks. Um, I think anything we do, we've got to look back to the performance side and not just do things because that's the way we've always done it or that's the way that I did it as a coach or as an athlete. Um, find real justifications for it. So taking it from that angle, why we do any sort of strength training in rowing, there's probably four possible reasons, um, in no particular order. Injury prevention is always going to be a big one. Um, it's very, very important, um, and what injuries we're looking at and why. Technical changes is probably something that we neglect. Um, if an athlete can't do something in the boat for a particular reason, we've got to figure out why. Um, are they not strong enough to hold that position? Do they not have the mobility? Do they not understand the patterning? Can they not activate the right muscles? Um, there are things you can do in the gym which can help build that strength foundation to do the technical things in the boat better. Thirdly, um, Rob will hate this term, but from a robustness perspective, um, if something is, is stronger and it moves more efficiently and it is more balanced, it is less likely to break. So if you have a good, a well-built athlete who is strong and balanced, they're going to be able to do more rowing at a higher intensity, at a higher volume, and not break down. Fourth, performance. So if we're looking at starts, someone who is stronger and more powerful, assuming they are technically competent, is going to have a better start, accelerations in the boat, and from a power endurance perspective, is where the performance change will come from the gym. Yeah, and I guess we've, we've talked a bit about that in some of the uh, podcasts we've already done in terms of actually measuring some of the force differences and the um, 
and the force that's actually relevant inside the boat now that we can measure that more easily mm. and we do see you know upwards of you know 170% maybe even for some athletes even like 200% of their average race power they actually access early so it's quite yep. a, a lot more isn't it yeah it is I think it's one of the really exciting things we have going on in sport at the moment is the um advancements in different micro technologies that allow us to um, assess performance in a more detailed way than we previously have been able to, whether that's um, strain gauges to measure force, uh, linear position transducers, which you use in the gym to look at power and velocity, where you can start to get a better of idea of what an athlete is, athlete is physical, physically capable of in the gym and how that goes into the boat. So we've obviously got a PhD student at the moment looking at some power meters and force uh, measures in the boat, and it'd be awesome to be able to see pure strength and how that relates to rowing performance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, spot on. Like, I'm, what I'm really interested to see with that sort of stuff is, you know, how much force can they generate in the gym space? How much force can they generate in the boat? Um, and, you know, where might, you know, the disconnect be? Mm. Um, I think it's often looking at where the transfer is from that because every coach will say, you know, oh, I've seen these big, strong guys, but they just can't move a boat. Well, of course they can't. If someone's not technically good, that, it doesn't matter how strong they are, they're not going to be good rowers, all right? So that's a, that's a big thing to look at. If they can row really well and build their strengths foundation and they've got a great strength and power reserve, and we've got these new technologies to see how they interrelate, I'd be pretty confident saying there is a good relationship there. Mm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. 100%. So a couple of things you touched on, Johnny, that I think would be interesting talking about. No, number one, injury prevention. What are we talking about? In terms of, in your mind, what are the key injuries that you're mindful of that you're trying to typically work around? Yep. I think um, ribs is always going to be the primary ones that we see. It's, it's the most occurring um, injury. Various back injuries always come into it. Now, the exact pathology of that um, is often hard to pick up, but backs are the other ones. Forearms, we know, can be an issue. Hamstring, tendons, um, occasionally shoulder issues. A lot of this comes back to dysfunctional movement. Yeah. So looking at ribs from an injury prevention perspective, you're trying to find out what elements are those risks. If you have poor scapular connection, so the way that your shoulder girdle moves, if you have blocked hips, which puts the load more into your shoulders or your chest, they're going to be issues. Yeah. Um, hips, the mobility is a big part. Glute activation is a term that gets thrown around pretty willy-nilly, but it's really important. Um, Hamstring tendons is a really interesting one. Rowing is probably a great sport to get a hamstring tendon issue because you've got an element of tension and compression from sitting on the seat and the position you're getting to the catch mm. is going to put that tendon under a lot of load. When we're looking at um, prevented, preventative measures in the gym, it's often a combination of some mobility, stability, and strength. Now, they all work in a continuum and it's not all one or all the other, but it's being able to break down where the limitations are in each athlete and addressing those. Yeah. So when we're talking about rib, if I take you back to that one, so we're yep. talking about uh, chest wall uh, issues, rib stress fractures and the like yep. in terms of that. What, if, if you're looking typically at that, because that is something at a, at a club level, certainly at an elite level and yep. even at a school level that is, is a bit of a constant worry for coaches and athletes around doing enough but not doing too much yep. with the repetitive load. So what do you think are the typical mechanisms of that injury without sort of you know, putting a medical hat on that you're mindful of in, in designing a movement program? Well, if you, the primary risk factor for most of the injuries is load and mm -hmm. spikes in load. Um, yeah. Anyone will break at a certain threshold, um, particularly if there's big jumps week to week or day to day. So you can't neglect 
you can't say, oh, I've got a great athlete who moves really well, they have great scat control, great core and all of that. If you have poor load management, it doesn't matter what you do, that, that is a huge risk. Yeah. So, that's so why you're I'm, talking about... I'm talking about overall who, rowing load, yeah. overall ergo load, even just general training load, that level of fatigue the athlete is carrying will more often be a bigger risk factor than any sort of a musculoskeletal thing. And that's something we talk a lot about, Rob. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we, we monitor the load and, and particularly the rowing load, you know, meticulously with the group here um, to try and prevent exactly that. Uh, and what's interesting is probably in the last two years, we've seen, um, you know, with, you know, the RA directive of doing a bit more sculling for the, for the sweepers is that, you know, we monitor the rowing load and things have looked fine mm. and suddenly we're getting these little rib issues from athletes who have been switching between mm. sweeping and yeah. sculling um, and you know and I look at it as you know somebody says oh, I've got a bit of a twinge in my rib and I look at their load and oh, you know it all looks fine and then but that yeah that changing between ergo sweep and sculling even if the you know kilometers or the hours spent that is a spike because it's, it's changing the modality of the exercise exactly yeah so not necessarily volume but the modality is also an issue yeah. Um, in saying that, load is a good thing. We will all agree yeah. with this. Having a gradually built load is a protective factor for injury. So yeah. you, know, you and should have for performance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So generally speaking, more training is generally better, generally. But to build it gradually and have a you know safe periods of deload and adaptation um, is probably the biggest injury prevention thing by far. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We've said before. You know, well, I've relayed before. I think. One of the biggest uh, factors in coaching rowing is you, you're sort of playing chicken with load all the time. We've mentioned that analogy before, like you're staring it down and you're yep. hoping to jump at the right time. If you if you jump too early, they're not going to be good enough and they're not going to perform. So yep. what's the point? If you jump too late, they get injured. Yep. And that's why we have Rod watching that stuff all the time um, to try and make sure we don't step over it. But you also do specific stuff in the gym to balance and as you, as you sort of said, you know, make more robust robustness mm. and you said that word balance and i think that's really interesting because we have a lot of people who row sweep which is not a balanced yep. movement so in terms of that sort of stuff what what is it in the gym that you are mindful of to try and counteract that mm. i'll touch on that first one you said that sweep rowing it's an asymmetrical movement um and you're never going to get people to be completely balanced who row sweep all the time we saw that with Josh Booth today on the ergo. Exactly, yeah, you can see that he hitches to one side very distinctly. Um, you're never going to, having asymmetries isn't the end of the world. It's okay, athletes can have it and have a very successful career now. Whether we're talking about hip mobility or glute activation, even bulk, you can see differences in the asymmetries. You should do, generally, generally speaking, do as much as you can to keep those balanced. They're going to exist, athletes will get by. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. Now, when we're looking at spe specific things um, that are good for a rower to reduce the chances of those injuries we mentioned earlier, there's a few things. Um, a big one is thoracic rotation and extension. So that's through your upper back. Now, whether it's sculling or sweep, it is a very, very important thing to develop. Yeah. Mobility in your thoracic and hips. So further from that, once you have that mobility in your thoracic, scapular control, so what your shoulder blade is doing, is very important. You want a nice flat scap which is connected, which means if the load of each stroke is going to be evenly distributed from your hand through your body to your foot. Right? Yeah. If there's kinks in the chain, if you think about it that way, the load will end up at one spot rather being spread, and that can lead to an injury. Yeah, and you see that, don't you, with uh, people, particularly 
if you watch a rower side on mm. and you see, a, a, you know, it's a, it might be a relatively steady curve in their back to a point and then there'll be a hitch at a point and then yep. it'll be, it's at that point where the hitch is that they're likely to get their injury. Yeah, it's likely that that kink in the chain is going to cause an injury there yeah. or somewhere else. The cool thing with rowing is that there's a lot of different shaped backs that have rowed really well before. Yeah. And there's, we would like to think that a perfectly smooth spine is exactly what you want. A lot of athletes aren't going to have that. Um, you can try and change that and work on that technically. There's only so much push you can get. Um, it's probably, thinking, if you think about what your athlete presents like as being the baseline, and you can push them so far one way and so far the other way. You've got to find which direction you want to go with each one of those things, whether it's mobility or stability. Push as far as you can there. It's never going to be perfect, but do as much as you can. Yeah. So, Johnny, in terms of the second point you said there was technical improvements or technical reinforcements yep. of, of movements. It's obviously, you know, to, to explain to Ron, we are fortunate to have John, who's essentially 50% with Ryan, 50% with swimming, and lives directly in our little office. So we talk all the time, every day, maybe too much. Um, <laughs> Very likely. <laughs> um, but we, we also have the opportunity because of our situation to constantly reinforce about the little things that I'm seeing on the water or, or whatnot. And we've had instances recently where, say Simon Gadsden, who's mm -hmm. one of our coaches who runs Mercantile Rowing Club, uh, came in and said, look, I think this athlete, you know, it's, they've got is issues with their postural chain or mm. um, gives a bit of an idea about, or maybe even some examples with on- the technique side. Yeah, where you've like had a technical- Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really cool thing when um, you're looking at the dry land gym perspective for the technique. Um, when I'm looking, when the coach comes to me, Bill will come and say, oh, look, we've got, you know, Rod over here, he can't row because of X, Y, and Z, he does this in the boat. Breaking it down, you say, well, why, why can't they do this, all right? Number one, do they not understand the movement? In that case, it's nothing physical. They just, mentally, they don't understand what the coach is trying to get them to do. Um, that can't be missed. B, is there a movement limitation? Are they blocked somewhere in the chain, which means that position that Bill or the coach wants them to get into, they can't get there because they're physically blocked in a joint. Mm. Are they not strong enough to do it? Do they? Can they do it when they're fresh or can they do it when they're fatigued? So fitness and strength endurance will come into that. They can't hold a good position under fatigue. Um, more often than not, it's probably a combination of all three. Yeah. Um, and we have to break down the elements of that. A common one we'll see, uh, probably easy to explain if you're looking at someone on an ergo, is where they're breaking the stroke early in their elbows and using their biceps to pull through. So you know, in rowing terminology, that is cracking the arms in the early part of the drive. Exactly that. So then you've got to ask yourself, why are they doing that? The athlete might just feel that they have a strong position and they just gravitate, gravitate towards that because it feels strong, right? And you've got to understand what they're feeling and why they're doing it. Most often it's because there's a weakness in their shoulder girdle. So often if you're looking at lower traps, serratus, um, aren't properly activated or don't probably have enough um, endurance in those small stabilizing muscles that as they fatigue, the shoulder girdle moves into a poorer position and they start breaking at the elbows to finish the stroke. Yeah. Now when we're looking at addressing that, sometimes we'll come back to that thoracic mobility that we looked at earlier and then a lot of scapular work. Yeah. So we talk about exercise like dumbbell punch, um, which is the stridus movement, um, dumbbell wise, um, a lot of banding, turn external rotation work. I can't be too specific because each athlete is a little bit different, yeah. but that's probably a good starting point that you're looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I suppose that might be a good sort of segue in one sense to start talking a little bit about how we've traditionally applied mm. um, strength training um, in, in rowing and perhaps m- maybe reflecting on how we've done it here in, in the past and also how you've seen it um, around our networks yep. um, because I don't think there's big differences. Um, maybe just have a chat about how or describe to the listeners how that's been used as part of the training program. Yeah. So I can only really speak from the um, Australian network and the strength training that's generally done there. I haven't had much perspective on other nations, but I'll give you a bit of a summary how we do it here. Yep. Um, traditionally, week to week, both through the year, both rows will lift three times a week. Um, now, the focus of those sessions will vary on the time of year. Um, traditionally, we've gone with what we call in SSE a very linear approach to gym training. So that means we start out with a general strength phase in the early preseason. Yep. We build that into more based max strength focus a couple months in, and then we close the competition and go to more of a power focus. Mm. So it's essentially different building blocks, one quality complements the next, which complements the next, and you're going from less specific movements and qualities to more specific movements and qualities for rowing down the track. For rowing, racing. For rowing, racing, and rowing performance. Yeah. Um, there are trends through that whole season to the injury prevention stuff, um, but yeah, the performance side will change. So just maybe a couple of really key terms that are worth defining, maybe the difference between strength and power and yep. how they relate to one another. So strength is the maximal force that you can produce in a movement. Yep. So when we're in an SNC perspective, you're looking at you know, one RM max, one repetition max, three repetition max of a heavy back squat, a heavy deadlift, a heavy bench pull, um, and those large compound exercises. Um, pretty much everything we do in a gym perspective are compound exercises. So that means multi-joint, um, and I hate this word, but more functional based movements. Yep. Um, as, opposed to, as opposed to what you might see in a bodybuilding complex where it's more muscle focused, isolated. isolated. Um, and then power is essentially the rate of force, that you, um, the rate of force development. So producing force quickly for power. Yep. yep. And, and that's probably, power is probably the ultimate end game outcome mm. that we're looking for in rowing, yep. isn't it? It is. So a little saying we have in the SC world is you can be strong and not powerful. So if like the big strong guys that can generate a lot of force, but they don't have much snap. They can't produce that force quickly. And that in rowing isn't the, it's not the worst thing, but it's not ideal. However, power, it's very difficult to be powerful and not strong. Yeah. Uh, you have to have a good strength foundation to be able to build that power later on. Now, Rod, we've, we've talked a little bit around this from a physiological point of view, but we've sp- spoken about the time under tension, which is relevant in this discussion around power, Absolutely. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and that's often what it comes back to for me. In you know, the, all the literature will, will quite nicely show that strength training is important in endurance sports. Mm. But when you look at rowing specifically, my view would be it, it may be the most important uh, because of the time under tension of the stroke. Mm. So in a sport like running, you've got next to no time to actually produce that force. Your foot is on the ground for, you know, less than 100 milliseconds. Um, in, in rowing, it's, you know, more like, you know, 750 milliseconds so you've got a long time to generate that force so it really is a true strength endurance yep. sport you know yep. if there is one I think yeah you've got to look at different compared to different sports rowing is a slow movement yeah and even when you're at rate 40 there is still a slow movement to what a human tissue is capable of contracting at 
Would you yep. agree with that? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Mm. And that, yeah, we've spoken about the physiological impacts of that, but from a from a uh, physical conditioning point of view, if you look at it in a gym focus, part of the reason why it is so important in, in um, why strength de development is so important is that the power, the ultimate power that you're looking for might not be as relatively speaking high compared to some of the other sports because the time under tension is much longer. Yes. So the time to produce is longer, therefore the strength side of the equation versus the speed yes. side of the equation becomes more important. And that's a very layman's way of describing, yeah. but I think that's pretty important. Yeah. yeah, and if you're comparing rowing to, say, cycling, another power-based metric, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the force that is required to be generated needs to be greater per stroke because mm. there's only you know so few strokes per minute. So as John said before, you might be in a men's four with an average stroke rate of 40 strokes per minute mm -hmm. um, versus you know if you were... A team pursuit cyclist, you know, your cadence is going to be over 100 yeah. revolutions per minute. So strength is is really important. And for we're that not reason. we're not talking Tour de France. We're talking track track team pursuit yeah. cycling. Because that's, yeah. that's the appropriate time frame, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's a little bit shorter than running. It's about yeah. four minutes for the team pursuit. Um, but yeah, it's not that much shorter than a men's eight, for example. Like no, no, five minutes twenty or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, very good. So, Johnny, in terms of the way it's been traditionally used, what what's the challenges to doing strength training or strength and conditioning mm. effectively through a season? What are the challenges that have maybe historically prevented you from doing the best you could do with the athletes? I think um, the biggest issue with gym and strength training in any endurance sport is uh, what we call the interfer interference, interference effect or uh, concurrent training. Easy for you to say. God, hard to get that one out. Um, <laughs> so what that is for listeners aren't familiar, um, obviously the adaptation you get from strength training is a different adaptation to what you get with a rowing and aerobic training. Now, those two stimuluses can often block each other in the way your body wants to adapt to them. Mm. Um, now, the jury is still out on some elements of this, but generally it is considered that uh, strength training will not block the aerobic gains. So you can train strength and improve aerobically fine. On the flip side, the aerobic gains can block the strength gains you're trying to get. So if you just want to get, if you're a normal person, not a rowing, just want to get really, 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 really strong, don't do too much aerobic training. Yeah. Now, if you're a rower and you want to get strong, that's absolutely fine. You can get strong and row, but you're just not going to get as strong as quickly as you would if you weren't rowing. So can you explain, Rodney, maybe some of the um, physiological principles at play there? Yeah, well, kind of as, as John explained, without getting into too much depth, the physiological adaptations that occur from strength training are almost the exact opposite to what you get from endurance training. Yeah. Um, and so really you, you're giving your body a certain stimulus and wanting it to adapt to that stimulus and then you give it a completely different stimulus with it, you know, an almost entirely competing adaptation mm. and your body, you know, for lack of a better term, gets confused and it can't quite adapt optimally to both. Yep. Mm. Um, and yeah, as John sort of said, and it, you know, rowing being an endurance sport, where sort of the endurance gains are probably a little bit more important. Um, yeah, it is difficult to maximize those strength gains that you get mm. for those reasons. So yeah, it's how you sort of balance that um, yeah. to or, you know, make the best of both worlds as best you can. And it can be done, both can be done. We've done it before and lots of other countries and clubs can do it. And it's, it's not that complicated, but it's a lot of it comes down to your priorities. 
yeah. and when those priorities are and how you're going to sequence those priorities and who for. Because not every athlete needs to be doing the exactly the same thing. But if you're in the you know, early season, it's something we've started to play around with a bit more is, um, let me say again, really prioritizing what the gains are we're trying to get. So if we're looking at some of our younger female athletes who are probably a little bit small, not very strong, might have a few more injuries because they're not very strong and don't move very well. If we want to make big gains and chunk, big gains and improvements in those areas, there has to be something taken out, something's got to change. Yeah. And all of that will be reduce some of their T2 volume, some of their hard threshold volume, so we can get a better gym stimulus in there. Now, how you actually do that, whether that's the number of sessions of the week, the time of your sessions, um, this, the type of strength stimulus you're trying to get, um, it's a little bit of an art form, but there are some general themes that we have. Um, so if when we're doing gym, you do not want to be doing that off the back of a two-hour row. Yeah. If you're coming into gym and you have already have a high-level acute fatigue, there's already that aerobic stimulus, that is pretty much going to bugger, bugger up and block any strength gain you wanted to get. Yeah, and I think if I can even jump in and say from a traditional rowing point of view, it's always been we row whenever we can. You know, yep. we're, we're sometimes we're serving the weather, so we row in the mornings um, because we want to get the best rowing time. And the, there's a lot of traditional dogma around the you know ten thousand hours um, needed to become an expert at, at rowing and mm -hmm. how hard that can be to get enough time on the water and all that sort of stuff. Now, I think that there's a lot of probably um, potential pitfalls with mm. with adopting that. I think there's a lot of evidence that might suggest that's not necessarily as hard and fast rule. I think it might have been Ericsson who brought that out mm. originally. Is, was that correct? Yeah, Ericsson. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But with, the other part with of With uh, pianists, I think, or violinists. Chess, like chess players. Uh, chess players. Yeah, chess players. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. I've never got that 10,000 hour rules. It just, it just doesn't quite seem right. No. It's, well, it's, you know, doing more of something, you're going to get better at it. But where do they... I don't know, I'm not well, sold. A, a lot of it's also about the deliberateness of practice. And, and yeah. that's what we see with rowing. You know, you can do uh, a two and a half hour row poorly, mm. or you can do a 60 minute row really, really with huge arousal and be absolutely yeah. ruined at the end of that mentally and, and even neuromuscularly if you're mm. really concentrated. But that's a little bit of a sidebar. I think the other part of the reason why historically you know, the uh, volume of rowing has overtaken maybe the priorities around giving adequate rest and recovery to the gyms yeah. stuff is that there's this sense that we need to develop the technical movement, but also the crews. Yeah. We're trying to weld crews together quickly often. So we need as many strokes together as a crew to try and get crews going. Um, and that that is a challenge, particularly when, you know, you're talking about that block of time post-selection yeah. to a world championship or, or something like that, isn't it? Yeah, I look. I, I think that's the sea coach. You got to. We've got to remember that rowing is the most important thing. We've got to listen to what the coaches say. Technical changes. They, to be a good rower, you need to row a lot. But there's got to be a bit of give and take with when what you try and prioritize. Because if you want one of you guys get strong, you're gonna have to change something. Yeah. One of my frustrations I've had, um, not not just with rowing, but with pretty much every sport, is where they've where you're saying, oh, you've done a two-hour aerobic conditioning session, go do a little bit of gym. Yeah. Now, you're doing, you come in there, athletes are completely exhausted, it might be their second or even third row for the day, you might as well send them home. Mm. And say, look, do a little stretch, go home, because you're gonna get more fatigue from doing this, and you are not going to adapt. It's just gonna add to 
how tired you are. Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly what I was going to say next. But it's something that we've spoken about a bit mm. in our little group is that you know nothing comes for free. There's a cost to every yeah. every form of training. Yeah. But what's the benefit? Yeah, so, there's a cost for everything, but not everything has a benefit. And the kind of point we're doing more is, is you know, you're not going to adapt anymore. Yeah, I think Sam Locke spoke about that with us even yeah. when he came in and he sort of said, yeah, you get this general fatigue, but you don't get this specific. Uh, signal that what tells your body to adapt mm. you're not getting that you're just getting this general fatigue and the body doesn't know how to deal with that so it just sort of goes into meltdown a little mm. bit and, yeah yeah so it, that probably segues pretty well into maybe some of the more recent things that we've been playing with because we we've probably acknowledged that and I know in the past and I'll, I'll happily stick my hand up John and say in the past we've half-heartedly tried mm. to, to do this well we've sort of said let's do a strength block here and we'll do a little bit of this and that to try and make it work but we haven't we haven't really gone full yep. full into it. But probably this winter we have played with some stuff um, yep. a bit more. I think we've definitely gotten better at it. I think a lot of this comes down to good communication between your athlete, your coach, and whoever looks after the gym training. Now, if that's the coach, that's awesome because you are in control. You have to communicate about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And yeah. look, the athlete has to understand. You know, at this time of year, this is your priority to put on muscle mass. Right. To do that, we're going to change the sequencing of your session. And I think from a um, practical perspective, the sequencing day-to-day, when your sessions are, how long the breaks are in between, is probably the more one of the simple, important things you can nail. And Bill, you've said this before, but you, you know, you've, the coach has to give a little bit for that. That's right. So tell us how, in your world now, at a very practical level, if we're wanting to do a strength block, how do you think what, what do we need to take out and how do we need to set it up well? Um, all right, so if we're looking at what we want to achieve, let's say we've got someone who wants to put on some muscle mass. Yep. So break down the time frame. how long do we have to do it and how long ideally would we have to do it? If we're looking at the row, I want to put on some muscle mass, I'd say eight to 12 weeks. Now, depending on that athlete's availability to train, ideally I would say you'd want four sessions per week. Okay. So figure out where logistics are where going to come to this. So if they're at school, uni, Let's put that aside for a sec, but you'd only ideally go like an upper body, lower body, Monday, Tuesday, day off, and then Thursday, Friday, same thing, upper, lower. Now, the reason I say that split programming is I rarely do this in a, a sporting context. It's traditionally what you'd see in um, you know, bodybuilding, like I said. But for a hypertrophy program where you're trying to get in more sessions per week with sufficient recovery, it works quite well. So hypertrophy, let's define that. Um, putting on lean muscle mass, right? So that's where you're training high number of reps, mm. close to fatigue with a slightly higher volume. So you're talking uh, eight to 12 reps, uh, 65 to 80% repetition max, one, to one minute, one, to one and a half minutes rest, um, large multi-joint exercises. Yeah. yeah. From, a, from a loading point of view and a, and a fatigue point of view, how might that compare to some of the more tr- traditional strength sessions? Yeah, it's interesting because you, you want to work the muscle to fatigue because that's what the big stimulus is for hypertrophy. Um, hypertrophy training will generally take a bit more out of the athlete than strength training or power training. Yeah. So if you're looking at like a sessional RP sort of measure, which is one of the good ways to measure gym load, it'll be higher because you are working to, to max to failure. It'll be actually pretty high, won't it? It's it'll a sort of session high. where people are yeah. pretty ruined afterwards. Absolutely. And, and you can pull up quite sore. You can, initi- yes. In- initially, yeah. Managing um, DOMS, delayed onset of muscle soreness is something I think we could touch on later is it? It's a big thing. Hypertrophy training, you get sore. Strength training, you also get sore, but probably not as much. Yeah. Now, 
the key thing when you're doing those hypertrophy gym sessions is that the athlete's coming in with a low level of acute fatigue. So fatigue from that day or the day before. Yeah. So what I meant, practically, you know, you'd like to say, oh, you know, eight hours rest. You're not going to get that. Mm. Maximize the rest. So four plus hours, you want them having between their last row um, or ergo or what bike. So they're coming in, freshies, do their yeah. lift and then not having any other training after that. So if you do that hypertrophy training session in the gym and then you jump on a walk bike for two hours, that's going to block some of the adaptation. Yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? Because traditionally it's been, I think that for a long time people have known that too much aerobic training leading into doing gym mm. might actually blunt the, the, um, the signal. But what you're saying is even afterwards, it's the same thing because yeah. your body is trying to figure out what it's got to recover. So Rob will probably be able to remind me a bit, but there was a paper that came out which looked at the the strength of the signal after a session and that it was a session that was done last in the day where the signal was present for the longest. So where they did gym and with the mTOR pathway stimulator and that was shown to be go for longer as opposed to doing something else last in the day. Yeah, well, because I, I think what happens is that exactly as you say, the signal, every time you train, there are then signals that go through the body to cause those changes um, and they have a certain you know length of time that they occur for. Um, and as soon as you do something else, it sort of starts to blunt that initial signal yep. and, and create a new signal. So, um, you know, if you don't train again from your last session of the day, obviously, until the next morning, that signal then goes, I guess, uninterrupted mm. until the next training session. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, and I, I guess what I was going to sort of ask you, Johnny, as well, is that we've chatted about this a little bit. There was a good paper looking at... Um, um, gym training and rowing and, and kayaking as well um, and what they found that was the hypertrophy type training that is training to, to failure which mm. is often what we do when we're, we're looking for those muscle gains yep. um, led to um, less gains in performance yes, so exactly. um, it impaired the performance gains yep. so how do you take that into account and then you know, in terms of your yearly periodization. Yes. So it's a good point you raise, and if you look at it that way, you'd say, oh God, what, why would we ever train hypertrophy? Yeah. Fair enough from what, what you said that, that paper showed, but the more important thing to look into it is the sequencing of why you're doing it and when you're doing it. Would you be doing that hypertrophy training right up to a competition? Absolutely not. Mm. It's not going to perform as benefit and it's probably going to be detrimental. But where we look at different strength qualities as being building blocks, where one complements the other and they complement the other, each um, sequential uh, stimulus is going to be better and more specific. Do the less specific, less important um, qualities like hypertrophy well, well before competition, work like months, months beforehand. So you, you're building the athlete to be a bigger, stronger um, performer, and then you go to your strength and then go to your power stuff, which complement performance far, far better. Yeah, and that's important to say because I think, you know, people might hear about these things or read something you go, oh we should never train to failure then because it yep. impairs performance but yep. you know that's definitely not the case yeah training to failure is a funny one and there's lots of different opinions on this but um it does have its place um one of my big frustrations is where the athletes training to failure every single session and it, it, it you adapt really well for about three or four weeks and then you'll stop because the fatigue from that is too high there's not enough recovery and the, the quality of the training will actually reduce and it does not work. It has its place, but you're gonna understand why you're doing it and when you're doing it to change failure. And again, you, you know, you'll you'll see really good adaptations in in those strength and hypertrophy gains, but mm. you may not see very good um, adaptations in your endurance gains. Yeah. And which 
and it is a give and, give and take, um, but you don't want to do eight weeks worth of hypertrophy training and see zero improvement in your endurance markers. Yep. So you're always trying to improve every everything, yep. um, but some things are going to improve by a lot while others improve by a little and, and then sort of switch it over sort of thing. So, yep. yeah. I think when you're looking at the strengths gains you're trying to get is, and going back to the interference effect, keep it simple. Um, you can't build hypertrophy, strength, max strength, power and power endurance all at the one time. Mm. So whatever quality you're looking at, um, particularly in endurance sport, if it's just the one strength stimulus, the one quality, focus that for a block. We call this block periodization as opposed to mixed. Um, mix is where you train a little bit of power, a little bit of reactive strength, a little bit of strength, and maybe a little bit of hypertrophy all the time. And that's what I did when I started out with rowing um, and swimming as well, which is similar sort of endurance qualities. Um, I've moved to more what we call a block periodized program. So we pick a strength quality, which we think is important for that time of year. We train that purely for four, six, eight weeks and then we move on to the next sort of quality. We still might have a little bit just to keep in touch with that last quality, so it feels um, a little bit of general strength, we still keep that, a little bit of that in there, yeah. but now we just focus on max strength. Yeah. Once we've done that for that block, we then go to a power, and we just do a tiny little bit of max strength just to maintain that, but we're focusing on power. Because mm. like Rod said, you can't adapt to everything. Yeah. So you can, put, you can put all these different stimulus in there, but if there's too many of them, your body's not going to which way to go, and you're going to get tired, but you're not going to get a, a um, reward for your work. Yeah, and that the exact same is true of all the varying degrees of the sort of endurance-based mm -hmm. adaptations that you're trying to make as well. You know, you can't focus on base fitness threshold, yep. VO2 max, anaerobic capacity, etc., etc., all at once. Um, you know, you could, but and you know, all the research backs it up as well. Mm -hmm. Is that you you don't adapt optimally to all those things, so you're better off block periodizing, yep. as you said. I think we might do a whole thing on block periodization at some point. But in a simple way, a lot of that comes down to comp, uh, good communication. Um, I'll say this again, but if you, you understand what the end point is you're trying to get to in terms of endurance or strength, and you know, write that down, understand what measures, what you're going to monitor for that, and then work back from there and commit to each block at a time and not be freak out and start changing things and become really reactive to it, but commit to one thing at a time and communicate well between your coach and your athlete. And if you're Lucky to have a little Rod Siegel here as well. Little. That's yeah, pretty People pretty. don't know how small he is. They're assuming yeah. he's massive. Yeah. <laughs> I just keep on buying smaller t-shirts to be um, Without hijacking what you've got written down there, I guess something that we've spoken about a little bit um, is you know, law of diminishing returns and whatnot. And yeah. um, I think it fits in well here because you, you've always sort of got you know, knowing that it's an endurance sport, you've always got the propensity to want to do lots of hours of training. Mm. Um, but you know, there's only so many 25-hour training weeks with three hard threshold sessions and yep. et cetera, et cetera, that you can do until you're just kind of not getting any better from yep. those sort of sessions. So um, you know, if you've got a block of eight weeks through the winter where you're doing significantly less rowing volume than we normally would, but you're making significantly greater gains from a strength and power perspective, um, you know, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, you know, you can you can forfeit some of those things um, because it doesn't. You know, the reality is it doesn't take eleven months to build your threshold power. Mm. Um, yeah, and you know, hopefully, as your career progresses, it is going to go up and up and up. Mm. But it can only go so far in in, in a period of time. So, um, you know, you are better off targeting some other, um, you know, key abilities to the sport. Um, you know, at various points in time. I love the way you think, right? 
<laughs> it's interesting though. Like it, it it's, it's. I think logically, just totally makes sense. But people get sucked into panicking that they're not doing this now, yeah. rather than planning as to exactly when they're going to do things and blocking those times and making sure that they're not trying to work on. Uh, volume on the water at the same time as strength in the gym. Absolutely. Yeah, you've got to separate those things out, which is interesting. And we will talk about this in the season focus because what, what I will do in a moment when we go to that is get Johnny to describe through the season how you would program it and then maybe get you, Rod, to comment on how you would then maybe adjust um, the other conditioning load to make sure that that fits and, and we can talk about what's a priority and when. Yeah. Sure. One of the things that uh, I just wanted to sort of touch on before we move on to that was in terms of the, the recent approach, I suppose just to describe to people where we got to. So it was sitting down really, because we were fortunate to have a bunch of top-end athletes, you know, Olympic medalists who were having a year off and look at it and say, well, how are we going to do this when we don't have to get, there's, we don't have a time trial coming up, there's no ergo coming up, we can actually do this properly. Mm -hmm. And we sat down and had a meeting with all of us to figure this out. And we, we sort of got to the point of saying, well, John, if, if, we, if we do need them to get stronger, they need to get stronger. They're already very strong. You know, they're already Australian record holders on ergos and stuff like that. But they need to get stronger to make those gains to get them to be the world's best. What do they need to do? And you sort of said, well, we need to break it down right now and take mm -hmm. advantage of this and do a program that looks like this. Yep. And to do that, I need you to do a lot less of this. Yep. And that's essentially how it, it, we got to that, wasn't it? Yeah, it was one of those funny situations where we actually had the luxury of not anything else getting out of our way. And mm -hmm. one, I think one of the things we did well with that, which often doesn't get done particularly well in other situations, is breaking down performance, the pure performance into different themes, saying what which one of these are important. We're not going to do what we've always done, because it's probably what will work, but we said, all right, this is what is important for a 2K performance. Yep. What are the, so from my perspective, what are the key strength measures and strength qualities that are important? What are the lifts we're going to do that are important? What are the sets and rep schemes and the loading schemes we're going to use, which might be a little bit different. So we look for a slightly different um, stimulus and variability um, in the type of training, because like you've said, these guys have been doing traditional strength training for, 10, Ten years. years. So that's a lot of time to be doing three by 10 back squats and three by 10 chin ups and the same thing like that. Um, which was a little bit of fun as well. It's nice to do things a little bit differently. So looking at the end performance that is most important for a ergo is their power endurance performance um, in the gym. That's the most specific thing. Going back from there, um, the max strength for do we say specific people? Yeah, you can. Yeah. yeah. So the Josh Dunkley Smith, who he had good general strength, moved really, really well, has fantastic mobility, but his max strength is pretty average. So he can lift a moderate weight again and again and again, but his max strength wasn't something he prioritized a lot. So for him, that was a big focus. So a lot of very high lifts, very low reps of deadlifts and squats for about, I think, 10 weeks. We really focused on that and then transition to the um, power endurance. Um, Josh Booth, very punchy sort of athlete, so good explosiveness, max strength was pretty good. Had a few movement issues, which were an is issue, so his posterior chain, hip mobility, a bit of thoracic. Um, so he initially was a big focus on improving the, that movement quality. Mm. And I think part of what is worth saying to almost wrap that up was, although that was a re relatively easy sell to us, to make the allowance in the in the overall volume, 
And for one of the athletes, that was not a problem. For one of the athletes, it was a problem initially not to be doing as much volume. Mm. And there was a concern that athlete was worried about um, doing a lot less uh, total volume and trying to do higher quality strength stuff. Now we saw strength improvements, we visibly saw physical improvements mm. in them. But what is critical is for that athlete in particular who was, who was worried about maybe not doing enough at times, we also saw a PB on the 2K ergo, mm. which I would say out of season is is a is you know you can't really do better in terms no. of marketing. And how much of how much normal rowing volume ergo volume of a traditional season do you reckon he was doing? Of rowing, yeah, yeah, fifty percent, yeah, if that, yeah, if that, that's right. If that, so if you're looking at that, saying, well, what qualities are trainable and have a performance impact? Yeah, so he did a he did a PB. And the other, they both did PBs, pretty significant PBs after being Olympic silver medalists through doing a strength focused program mm. with 50% rowing volume. Yep. Some bike stuff to supplement some volume, but some a very lot specific less. ergo stuff, yep. but yeah, the volume dramatically less. Mm. In saying that, these guys have had a huge amount of volume for 10 years, yeah. so but that, that box that has been ticked. That diminished returns yeah. principle. So how much more are they going to get out of doing more volume, more volume, more mm. volume to get a specific improvement? Yeah. I'm not too now sure. We're, we're going to talk more about, we'll, we'll do a whole podcast on all of that at some stage as well. But Yeah, and, and I guess, John, you brought up something interesting before when you were talking about JDS. Um, you know, his maximum strength wasn't dramatically high, yep. but he could punch out reps, rep after rep after yep. rep. Uh, and this probably simplifies it, and we've, we've given this analogy before, but it's probably a good one to repeat. And, and I do think it simplifies it a bit, but the general concept would be, you know, if you can produce this much, you know, this is your max strength, and you can hold a certain percentage of that on and on and on, if you increase that max strength and you, know, you translate that yep. onto the water, how much force can you produce in one stroke? You know, that maximum force production is now higher, yep. but you've got you know, a requisite level of um, you know, endurance for that yep. strength. You're gonna get an increase in your performance just from that. And, and mm. the research backs that up. And, yeah. and again, that simplifies it a little yeah, bit. So strength reserve. Yeah. So you push the top, you reckon the same relative, there's less of a cost. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, talk, explain that a little bit if you, if you can. Oh, I think you pretty much just explained <laughs> it then, more or less. Um, of the each stroke of the amount of force which is produced, which is sub-maximal to the max. Yeah. Now, if you build up that absolute max strength to a higher level, doing that same relative force production is going to cost you less because the ceiling's been pushed up higher. Yeah. Um, JDS doesn't, he's never gonna be a world-class powerlifter, but just pushing that strength level up just a little bit will have a significant effect on that relative strength for each, relative force reduction for each stroke. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's, it's a very, it's an often overlooked mm. part of the, the picture in, in rowing coaching, mm. I think. Probably not from your point of view, John. Yeah, I'm and, extremely biased from that perspective. <laughs> yeah, but it's certainly a rowing coach's view might be not always at the forefront and of mind. That maximal strength, the stimulus is, is it's very, very neural. It's not a, it's not going to, people will say, oh, it changes your fiber composition. I was like, you cannot change, change their fiber composition with the amount of rowing going on. And yeah. the fact they're already an elite yeah. endurance athlete, it's really not going to happen. Not, it's going uh, one direction, it's, it's, not it, that one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. it, gets, it gets thrown around a lot and I, I'm really confident saying for most of the people who've been rowing that, that fiber composition is going to be 
pretty set. And yeah. the reason why training maximal, true maximal strength is really good and it's not going to affect your aerobic gains is that it's a neural adaptation. It's not changing your type ones to twos or whichever way that goes. Mm. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. So don't stress about that. And from an interference perspective, that's why you know training max strength is going to be the one you want to go to as opposed to hypertrophy, work with fail in that area. And again, all the research backs that up, exactly yeah. as you said, yeah. So John, what we might do before we get to describe a, a typical strength training session is maybe just briefly walk through a season as to how you would um, uh, prescribe the strength and conditioning and get Rod maybe to comment on the impact of that on the, the rest of the loading. Yeah, would you like it to be a specific scenario Let's or just say as general we've as just possible? just got back from the World Championships and we've had our two weeks off and yep. we're getting started. Yep. So that first initial, very initial block, I'd say any injuries, address that. Yep. And any imbalances that are going on. And if there are any big technical thing the coach wants to make a change, get stuck into that first. Because they're saying, oh, they had a good season last year, but they. Had a, they were really short in their stroke of the hips were boxed, they were terrible hamstring length. Address that stuff at the very, very start because it's going to be harder and harder to address that stuff as the rowing volume bumps up. up. Yeah, so nail that the technical side, the movement side, the injury prevention side first so they're a nice, healthy athlete once the season ramps up. Yep. Absolutely the biggest priority. And that's chat with the coach, chat with the athlete because they'll tell you, they'll know what the issues are. Chat with the physio. Chat with the physio, doctor, whoever else is in your sport type, support staff team, mm-hmm. go from there. From there, um, basic movement patterns and general strength. So it doesn't have to be super specific, but you're looking at a good hip hinge pattern, a good single leg squat, good, um, you know, your good squat pattern, good delet pattern, push, pull, upper body your general strength, so your strength's foundation. So, And typically, what would the sets and reps look like for that? You're looking anywhere from six to 12, mm-hmm. um, up to 20 for some sort of uh, activation and postural endurance sort of exercises. That block, you'd want to go from six to eight weeks, lifting three times a week, um, full body, every session. Um, the way we break down most of our sessions, we have a movement prep, where we address those small, nitty-gritty muscle activations, movement, uh, mobility and stability stuff. Then your main compound lifts, so those basic movement pan exercises, and then your, uh, I dislike this word as well, core, but all your trunk yep. um, trunk exercises. Yep. Um, general to start with, because you want to master those basic movement patterns, six to eight weeks, general strength for the loading. And three times or four times? Um, it depends on the athlete. Yeah, um, but there might be athletes where you do four then Absolutely, and this is where you know, I said earlier, it's down to the priorities, because if you've got an athlete who needs to put on weight, if you know, mm. a female rower who, doesn't have a great muscle mass, um, which is a factor for performance, that will probably be where you really, really focus into a hypertrophy block. Because yep. uh, it's going to be easier for you to make those uh, lean muscle mass gains at that time of year when the rowing volume is naturally down. Mm-hmm. That's where you got to do it. And the impact of that on the training, how, how would we consider the rest of the training with that? Yeah, well, that, then that's something we had to go through in the group was, um, you know, obviously bringing the load down not just in terms of the duration of individual sessions, but also the frequency of the endurance mm. sessions. So mm. when they're into full training from a rowing perspective, they're often doing three sessions a day on, on more than you know multiple yep. days a week. So um, you know, in that sort of period, we kind of thought, well, you know, better off really just sticking to primarily two sessions a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. To sort and of it makes the sequencing easier as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it yeah it just allows that additional time between 
between sessions to recover from the first session um, to be fresh enough to really get the good adaptation and you know from the, those signals to run their course you know if you row at seven in the morning you're not at gym until yep. three thirty. that signal from the first session that's run its course now you can you know hit the signal from the gym perspective yep and for coaches out there who say that doesn't sound like a lot of training again we re-emphasize that we've seen olympic uh, medalists do that and do pbs on ergometers doing that so yeah. It's not gonna. It's not gonna take him backwards. Yeah, and, and for a period of only eight you know, weeks, eight, eight weeks especially weeks. at the very beginning, you know, if it's August, September, September, October, you yeah. know, you've still got so long to yeah. build up those capacities. And just remember, from a rowing perspective, down the track when they're at trials and you're seeing them make these technical errors that you know, because they're stiff or not stable, it's too late to make those changes. You have to address that well in advance before the rowing ramps up and. You've got to know your athlete, know what their issues are, and really fix it. Make sure they have some intent in fixing those things from the athlete's perspective, and they're not just rolling around on the ground doing some thoracic mobility because my coach tells me to. You say, well, you can't row because your thoracic's stiff. We need to fix this before we ramp the rowing up. It's really, really important. Yeah, and there's there's a couple of things in that. Like you sort of said before about having a robust athlete. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you want an athlete who can sustain 20 odd hours worth of training a week in the big heavy training blocks mm. um, but you know you haven't built a strong resilient mm. robust yep. athlete you know because you couldn't sacrifice eight weeks of doing slightly less volume mm. then you know it might come back to bite you yep. later yeah. on I think it's, it, it's, a, it's an investment it's an investment for the future plug in super generation here um, yeah it is it's an investment and you got to be you got to sacrifice a little bit for it to make those changes so isn't that funny the investment is actually not doing something rather than investing yeah. or doing well more. you're investing yeah. in a little bit more uh, structured gym training yep. but you're, you're keeping going up a little bit and Johnny I mean I guess I'd ask you Traditionally, how we would have done it, where we haven't made these sacrifices, how big are the gains in strength that you see in the gym? Oh, it those it depends on the time of year. I'd, I'd say once the worst example or the worst case situation is once you're full into your highest rowing volume and you're trying to get them stronger, you're probably going to stay stable at best. Yeah. You're not. You're not. In terms of muscle mass gains, you, it's very, very difficult. In terms of maximal strength gains, a little bit, but not much. The difference between early season when you've taken that um, the aerobic stimulus out and you've put in some good dedicated strength work, it's a big, big difference. And the athletes will tell you that they'll go, geez, I'm just making changes so much quicker. I feel great. I've never gone this strong this quick. And it's not so much that the training's any difference and it's nothing, you know, I'm not doing anything magical. It's just the rowing's less. Yeah. that you're getting a better bang for your buck for the same stimulus. Yeah. So if, to that logic, Rod, then, if you just pushed on all year round with the same, essentially, volume load, you, you essentially expect to see no strength improvement ever. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I guess that... At yeah, best, you'd you, hold. You, 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 will, yeah. you might see some of it. This is, you know, it depends on the athlete. If they've been doing yeah. it for 10 years and you keep doing the same thing with a huge amount of rowing volume, I, I wouldn't expect to see much of a change. They'll put yeah. the same weight on the bar every single session, lift it, you go, I'm not improving, and you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find a way to change it. A younger athlete who's trained less, they're going to improve at, at everything if you do from yeah, the training, and that's just diminishing returns. Um, but, that, I mean, that's the best, that's the perfect um, example in the two Joshes, in that, you know, they're both two-time Olympians, mm -hmm. Olympic medalists, they've been training in this sport for over a decade now, yeah. and 
now suddenly they're doing PBs in the gym in their late twenties. Mm. Um, you know, when they've already been doing this for a long time. So yeah, yeah, that, the proof's kind of in the pudding, I think, with that. Mm -hmm. And and then the performances have followed mm. from the physical perspective. Yeah. So undoubtedly. Yeah. So from that first block leading into, I guess, summer then, what? How does it transition from that strength focus into what's next? Well, it's still a strength focus. Um, once you've got that general underlining strength, base strength, foundation strength, there's lots of different words used for it. More general strength, what I'll call it. Max strength is your next big focus. And you can pretty much train your maximum strength all the time, all year round. But this is a time where it'd be best to do. And how long you want to train max strength it will be more dictated by when the next time you want to perform it is. Mm -hmm. So whether that's the trials or nationals, um, it usually works out for us to be about three months, 12, yeah. 10 to 12 weeks of focusing on max strength. Um, so that usually we'll go up to Christmas, to January, where we'll have our January camps. Yeah. Once I come to that January, I'll just touch on this slightly, with Christmas and with you know, your traditional January ca camps, you'll lose strength because it's a broken period where there's more rowing volume. Yeah. It's really important to take advantage of that lead up to Christmas, up to December, to really build up that maximum strength level. So if it drops off a little bit, it's not the end of the world. It's okay, yeah. you've got awesome strength to- Got a buffer. You've got a buffer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's a good way of looking at it. You've got a buffer of your strength gains, your robustness gains. When you go to start training power leading into a uh, major comp, you've got that box ticked. I think, I think that concept of actually building buffers is really important yeah. because it's the same even when you go from a, a colder climate to a warmer climate if you're going overseas yep. for a block of time and they shed weight over there yep. and they struggle to hold I think you the, need a buffer I think the weight management is a big thing um, and we all know athletes that really struggle to hold weight you absolutely need to create a buffer on that so it doesn't matter if male or female you know they're going to lose weight once the rowing volume bumps up once they're going to summer once they're going to competition it's going, they're going to struggle to hold that weight so if you're looking for, to do a hypertrophy program with an athlete where that's appropriate it's a good idea to try and overshoot that mark a little bit. Mm. If you can, it's always hard to make those muscle mass gains, but if you can overshoot a little bit, so you've got a buffer for when it drops off. It's a, it's a good idea if you can get there. And max strength is, is lower repetition. Lower repetitions, higher volume. Um, traditionally you'd say less than five reps mm -hmm. above 80 to 85% of repetition max. Yeah. Um, now you've got to have an athlete who has the gym competence to be able to train true max strength. Um, mm. With your developmental rollers, you're not really going to be training max strengths for a few years. They're yeah. going to be sticking around that base strength level because they don't have the um, technical and structural integrity to be able to hold a heavy load on their back or pick it up. So obviously gym training ways do it very safely. Um, and it takes a few years to master that really heavy lifts. And that is, you know, with us, having junior athletes here now for the first time that's a big focus isn't yeah it? it's, a, it's developing that over a few years so they can do a better job yeah generally generally speaking everything i've said i'd relate to you know you're under 23 and above yeah. um not this is not school level not probably not under 21s some under 23 and above mm. when you're looking at you know your school level guys mask get really really good at the basics your basic movement patterns your hip hinges your single leg squats at a general strength level Get both down pat. Don't even worry about the max strength. Yeah. Just get them to learn to move well, move functionally, be able to tolerate some load, and still enjoy gym training. Try and make it fun because I know some athletes find that bit of a bit of a drain to start with. But um, that's really important. They master those fundamentals first. Mm. So from max strength, 
Yeah. Where do we head? Um, then you start looking at your different sort of power metrics. Your, your pure power exercise where you're looking at snatches, um, cleans, your Olympic lifts. Yeah. Um, plyometrics, I think, are a really underutilized form um, of training and rowing. Um, if you look at the muscle tendon sniffers, it's, it's, you know, the, the efficiency of the contraction of the muscle is really important. Even in rowing where there's not really a stretch shortening cycle, um, it's a great power stimulus. Well, we think there is a bit of a stretch shortening cycle. I think, I think the, yeah, a little bit I think it depends on the boat. Pick a I think it depends on the boat. Depends how on much the skill of the rower. It depends on the skill of the rower. I think where you kind of have that trampolining sort of effect out of the catch, I think there, there's a pseudo sort of stretch shortening cycle. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, yeah, look, I think there are probably is to a small degree, yeah. but not to the traditional sport yeah. like running, for example, yeah. sprinting. Yeah. Um, and then you've got your power endurance and this is a something I've started to think about playing around with a little bit more um, where you've got a high velocity high power movement and doing that for a sustained number of reps and trying to maintain power so I'm not talking about doing like a circuit strength endurance where you're going to do 250 reps of bodyweight squats because there's how many how many strokes in a rowing race? About 250. Because there's 250 reps. That's that specificity, that argument chucked up a lot. It's it's not valid. Um, we'll talk about for the, in a little sec. But power, what I'm talking about with the power induced from a practical perspective is something like a 10 rep counter movement jump, trying to maintain power as high as possible with big rest. So you're talking very good quality movements, very explosive, but for a sustained number of reps. Yeah. Um, and that's something I've just started playing with around a little bit. That stuff's really good once you've got your traditional strength and your traditional power boxes ticked. And that would almost be what you do leading into competition. That's absolutely, yeah. So that's what I'll do. That would be the last sort of performance stimulus I've been looking at working on. Mm. Yep. Yeah, so good. Yeah, I mean, touched on uh, what I was going to say is the one thing you haven't really spoken about in mm. that periodization is your strength endurance circuits. So yeah. As you sort of said, there's a little bit of that dogma, you know, that's what the sport is, we're going to replicate that in the gym. Yeah, what do you the, think about the that? Repli replicating, the, the traditionally people will think, oh, if I'm going to do something in the gym, it has to look like the sport. So if I'm training in the gym for swimming, it's got to look like swimming. If I'm training gym for rowing, it's got to look like rowing. So there's always been that specificity of the appearance of the exercise. Then there's the appearance and the, the, the time and number of reps of a movement because that's what's in a race. Mm. The specificity is in the, the, the underlying adaptation that you're wanting to get. If, if strength is important for rowing, you need to train strength. It doesn't have to look like rowing for it to transfer and be important. The number of reps thing, it's, it's a cool idea, but it it's just does not work that way. If you want to do that number of reps, go and row. Because yeah, the, the specificity <laughs> is go and row to get that. I think the funny thing on that is, no one just goes and does 10, uh, 250 uh, strokes and then gets off the water. Like no. people do 20Ks and you gotta do 28Ks for it to be a serious row and all this sort of stuff. And yet, you know. If, if it was that th simple, every track and field 100 meter sprinter would go run 100 meters flat out once a day yeah. and that'd be it. Yeah. That's, that's as specific as you want. We all know it doesn't work that way. And I think the concept of specificity is very overstated because generally what you're doing is not specific, specific no. to the performance visually at what you're looking at, but what you said before was spot on in that you said the training session has to be specific to the ability that you're trying to yep. gain, which is important for the sport. Yep. So, and exactly as you said, and you know, you know, part of a team working in kayaking before that tried exactly that, 
you know, they were going to do 100 strokes, uh, sorry, they were going to do 100 reps of different exercises to, to mirror 100 strokes in the boat. Um, and I remember the coach at the end of that saying, that session was really good for getting good at that session. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. It didn't, didn't make him paddle the boat any faster. Look, going looking at circuit training, there are, re- I'm not bashing circuit training because I use it in certain situations. There are reasons what, where you would use it, um, but you've got to go back to performance saying, what's important to performance? What are those themes? And break it back from there. Doing, you know, 50 push-ups, 50, 50 chin-ups, 50 squats, 50 sit-ups, 10 times you're fatigued and vomiting on the ground. It is bloody hard. Mm. And you want to toughen your guys up, do that. Don't injure them doing it. But that's probably the only reason why. Yeah. Um, strength endurance, building max strength will improve strength endurance. Being good base strength will improve strength endurance. Doing your, your nitty-gritty postural stuff will improve that. Um, circuit training has place. There are some aerobic stimulus to it. Do it on a camp for a bit of fun. You know, if you haven't got equipment, if you haven't got equipment, yeah. If you're just trying to promote a bit of, uh, you might be trying to weld the culture of the group yeah. together. I, I good, think good, good, but not for strength or strength endurance. No, there are, you know, people talk about toughening athletes up by smashing them in circuits. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to get performance back from that. They're, they're, the quality of the movement goes absolutely out of the window. People's backs going all over the place. People are dragging themselves onto the ground. There's not a performance game, but there could be, a, if you're looking for a change in culture, to toughen up the groove, a bit of um, bonding. We do some boxing a couple yeah. times a year. The guys love it. It's good fun. Yeah, I agree. Um, yes. So moving along, um, because we are probably going to run out of time shortly, is there anything else before we actually talk about a quickly for a typical session that you want to mention, JT, that we haven't covered here so far? Um, I think it's important to engage and understand the athletes you're working with in the gym and understand the sport. So from an SSE perspective, it's easy for an SSE coach to get carried away with, oh, strength is the most important thing, we'll do this. If, if you have an SSE coach working in your program, get them integrated. You know, Teach them what rowing is, teach them to understand the sport, the history, the way crews work, crews, you know, the better you can ingrain yourself in a program, the better. And likewise, from a rowing coach perspective, get in the gym, chat to your SSE coach, chat to other coaches in your network, you know, what have you done in the gym before, what's worked. Understand from their um, perspective as well, because your SSE coaches are gonna have a fresh view of rowing. They're gonna see it from probably a, you know, maybe university side or from a gym side, and there's gonna be a little bits you can tap him to, but you've also, got to educate them on the sport because, you know, we're not going to understand it purely and there's always a little bit of, there's a lot of art in yeah. it, in strength training. Um, and the better each person understands their role, the better it is. Yeah. So does that mean you're coming to Karim on Saturday? For the I will occasionally come up earlier. I think the, yeah, I think the AFL Grand Finals on Saturday. I might have something yeah, Not on. at 6am, mate. No, I've got, yeah, I've got my, my training for something, yeah, lifting weights. All right, well, we might move on to the final part. Yep. So, Joe, we're going to get you to very quickly talk us through a typical strength uh, training session. Uh, perhaps just some of the exercises you typically prescribe, the sets and reps, and some of the things you'd look for. Yep, fantastic. All right, so the first part of our program is our movement prep warm-up. So what we're looking for here is mobility and stability and activation exercises. So we'll do some foam rolling, ITBs, thoracic lats. We'll move on to some two thrusting uh, mobility exercises, so down face dogs, um, which is a yoga, yoga exercise, and then some book openers. 
From there, we'll look at some scap control exercises. So something like a push-up walkout, which is where you're in a push-up position, you walk hands out, say strong through the shoulder and touch your nose on the ground, and then walk back into a push-up position. Very hard, great for shoulder stability. Um, and then something like a serratus dumbbell punch, where you're holding your arm out straight, you're pressing the dumbbell um, through your serratus, through your scap, and then bring it back. Look these up on YouTube if you want to see what that looks like. Um, hip mobility, something like a band hip opener um, for a little bit of distraction, um, a spider lunge and a little bit of lunge with rotation. And then some sort of a glute activation exercise. That could be a crab walk, a running man, if you're lucky to have any reformers, is some abduction and scooter based exercise there. So that's our warm up. You can add in a little bit of a general aerobic warm up, some skipping and stuff if you want, um, that's all fine. Now going to the, the work sets, the main strength part of the, ex of the program, um, you're gonna be looking at some sort of a large compound lift. Um, back squats, front squats, and deadlifts are the three fundamental exercise, exercises you should be using to build strength. They're quite functional, they provide a lot of stability, but they're good for building strength. Sets and reps for that, traditionally you'd say a five by five. Um, I'll usually use an incremental loading scheme, which means each set is just a little bit heavier than the last, still maintaining some good bar speed, so they're not working to failure. Uh, but if you're looking at an RP out of 10 for the last set, you probably want to be about an eight to nine. So you haven't quite failed, but it was pretty bloody hard. Yeah. All right. You then, so that's your lower body compound exercise. You're then going to go into your upper body push and pull. Um, now the pulling is obviously slightly more important for rowing, but it's important to be balanced with some pushing um, and it also helps in chest wall loading. So something like a heavy chin up, a heavy bench pull, a heavy single arm row for your pulling exercise. Um, similar, you'd go four by six up to four by eight for your sets and reps. Um, and weighted push-ups is a fantastic one for upper body pushing strength. Um, it requires a lot of scapular control, a lot of trunk strength. Um, weighted push-ups for your upper body pushing exercises is by far the best, I think, for rowing. Doesn't require a lot of equipment as well. No, it's a good one. You can get coxswain to stand on your back if you've got nothing. Seriously, we have guys who can do, you know, four by six push-ups with 40 to 50 kilos on their back. That's, you know, not light, and it requires an awful lot of trunk control as well. When I'm on holidays, I get my daughter to sit on my back. There you go. I'm not kidding. Yeah? I believe that. I get Rod to stand on mine, so it's... I've been waiting for that. Um, so from there, you're looking at your accessory lower body stuff. I'll usually break that down into a unilateral or a single leg exercise and some sort of posterior chain exercise. So your posterior chain being your, your glutes and your hamstrings. Um, single leg exercise, single leg squats to box, lunges are fantastic. You usually go a slightly higher number of reps with these because they're not a true max strength exercise. So something like a three by 15, three by 12, three by 10, that sort of area. Uh, a great posterior chain exercise, a Nordic hamstring lowers, doesn't require any um, equipment. You essentially have the one athlete kneeling on the floor and somebody holding their heels and you lower the body forward while the hamstrings contract and lengthen at the same time and then you pull yourself back up. That's your meat and potatoes, you could say, of your programming. Very general strength. It works and you do that all year round. It's fantastic. Your core part of the program, um, even just sit-ups. So when you think about training your trunk, you think about all the movements that you can do. You can flex forward, you can flex the left, you can flex the right, and you can extend backwards. You can do those active movements, and then you have your static holds working against those movements. So I like to do a little bit of each. So you could have a, a static plank and a static pelvis press, which is like a lateral 
cable hold, so you're, you're bracing through your obliques. You want something with a little bit of flexion, so that could be a hanging leg raise, and something with a little bit of extension in your lower back, so that could be a, a scorpion over a Swiss ball, or a back extension also works quite well. Lastly, for your core, you want some sort of rotation, sweep around rotation, and it's good to build strength for everybody. Cable rotations, med ball throws against the wall, uh, great variations. All of those keep the reps slightly higher, because they're more, your 15 to 20 reps, um, three to five sets is what I would normally do. And you don't need a whole lot of rest between those ones. Yeah. That's your, uh, general, generally speaking, that's uh, what we do. Very good. Any questions from you, Robin? Heaps. We haven't got time for that. That's right. <laughs> Well, Johnny, it's been great to get you in and we'll no doubt have you in again over the uh, over the coming uh, block of time. The biggest thing I took out of it was communication. You mentioned that about half a dozen times. Yeah. That's the key, isn't it? Communication. Good communication, understanding what you're trying to achieve and prioritizing those uh, training qualities. Very good. Thanks, mate. No worries. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Johnny. Okay, Johnny. Right. Keep it real. See you all very soon.